Hello, my name is Chuya, and this is the Media Podcast, where I talk about medicine in the context of media. This week, I spoke with one of my very best friends, Sabrina, about her experience on Ozempic. But if we're talking about medications for weight loss, I wanted to provide some more context on BMI and weight in general. There has always been a lot of debate over the relationship between weight and health. This is a sensitive topic and it's a complicated topic. We often use body mass index or BMI as an indicator of health. And in the other episode released this week where I talk about Ozempic or more broadly GLP-1 agonists, I go over the indications to take this medication and it is based on BMI. It is not debatable that generally speaking, weight and things like high blood pressure, fatty liver, high cholesterol are related, but when? How much weight? If you don't have those conditions, is weight alone a good indicator of your health? And to take it a step further is BMI. So in this episode, let's first talk about what the heck BMI even is, where did it come from, and what are its flaws? And then I want to touch on some of the factors that influence weight because it is not as cut and dry as we are all taught to believe. I think that both of these are important to discuss and it will give some more information to help better understand the episode on Ozempic. For those who don't know, BMI is a calculation that basically accounts for someone's weight relative to their height and it gives you a percentile relative to the population. This index was developed by Adolf Quetelet, perhaps pronounced, who was a Belgian mathematician in the 1830s, so about 200 years ago now. He came up with this formula by using a sample of exclusively white European men. When he developed this formula, Quetelet intended to use it for a population statistic, so to describe the population overall, not any individual person. In the 1970s, a psychologist and obesity researcher, Ansel Key, claimed that BMI was a more accurate and helpful tool versus height versus weight tables that they used at that time to assess someone's health. And he deduced this based on a large study he did that looked at predominantly white European and American men. So why did BMI catch on the way it did? Well, amongst populations of white males. It was consistent, so it seemed like a useful tool. It's an affordable method, so it can be calculated by any facility or even at home by an individual. But now let's talk about some problems with BMI. First off, we know that excess fat is a risk factor for heart disease, stroke, cancer, lung disease, diabetes, like I said, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like asthma, sleep apnea, arthritis, joint degeneration, gastric reflux, depression, and more. But does BMI appropriately represent body fat? With an individual, BMI does not represent body composition. It doesn't account for bone, muscle, or fat. It just looks at your weight overall. But the different proportions of muscle and fat and the different densities of bone all influence your weight. It also does not consider waist size and waist circumference or the distance around your midsection is a good indicator of what's called visceral adiposity. 
Visceral adiposity is the fat in your belly within your abdominal cavity around your organs. So the actual fat on your stomach, liver, and intestines. We know that this visceral adiposity is a very good indicator of a lot of these health problems, especially heart disease and diabetes. But BMI does not capture where your fat is. It just captures your weight to height ratio. Multiple separate studies over the past 50 plus years have looked at a huge portion of the population and findings consistently showed that the lowest mortality, so risk of death, was found amongst people with a BMI around 27. But with the certain classifications that we use, a BMI of 27 is classified as overweight and people are counseled accordingly. One of those studies that found that optimal BMI being at 27 also showed the risk of weight circumference to BMI ratio. So BMI could be useful when looked at in the context of waist circumference. And this study actually found that the greatest risk of death in patients with a high waist circumference to BMI ratio was in a group with the lowest BMI. So people with a low BMI but a large waist circumference relative to their BMI had the worst outcomes over time. BMI is clearly not reflective of body composition at all. And when it's used to categorize people into one of four distinct categories, so either underweight, ideal, overweight, or obese, it uses arbitrary cutoff points that were derived from those initial studies on that one specific demographic, white males. With BMI having been established using this one demographic, how does it translate to other groups of people? Unsurprisingly, not that well. Between sexes, different percentages of body fat have been found to be more optimal. So in men, they need at least 2 to 5% body fat, and healthy is 2 to 24%. In women, they need at least 10 to 13% fat, and they're considered healthy with a body fat percentage of 10 to 31. So even though these ranges are established and women with more fat might be considered healthy, whereas men with less fat might be considered healthy. Men and women are still categorized based on the same BMI cutoffs. It's also inaccurate for people of different ethnic backgrounds. People from different backgrounds have different, for lack of a better term, body types, and that influences at which BMI they might be more or less healthy. A large study in 2003 showed that higher BMIs may be more optimal for Black people relative to the cutoffs that are established and that Black women don't even show that significant risk in mortality until a BMI of 37, whereas people from South Asia have a higher incidence of metabolic disorders at a lower BMI and their BMI that should be classified as unhealthy is a BMI of 23 which for Caucasians falls into that range of ideal. Even still, although different BMIs are found to be better or worse in different populations, it's still an average amongst that demographic, not a specific threshold that applies to every individual. So even if I'm saying a BMI of 23 might be considered unhealthy for people from South Asia, that doesn't mean that everyone with a BMI below 23 is healthy and everyone with a BMI above 23 isn't. To better use a BMI, it should account for muscle mass and bone density and to really know a person's risk so to appropriately interpret BMI you should consider things like sex body type medical conditions they already have family history of medical conditions lifestyle choices so not just diet and exercise but 
drug and alcohol use, and more. So BMI can tell us a very little bit, maybe, but it's really not enough on its own to portray someone's overall health. So what are some implications of using it as a metric of health? First off, BMI can perpetuate weight bias, both in a healthcare setting and socially. People in larger bodies tend to get less quality care. Doctors can diagnose them, underdiagnose them, or misattribute certain symptoms to their weight that really have nothing to do with their weight at all, and then don't treat the actual problem. Because of this, people can be discouraged from seeking healthcare because they feel dismissed or judged, and of course, that will promote worse outcomes over time. Weight stigma also influences mental health and can cause chronic stress, which in itself is a risk factor for things like heart disease. Not only does using BMI influence how people are treated by others, it also influences what insurance coverage they may be eligible for or what drugs they may be prescribed. For example, these GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic are prescribed based on BMI, but not everybody with a BMI in the obesity category needs to lose weight for their health. And this drug, of course, has side effects, which I discussed in detail in the Ozempic episode. So it's problematic to prescribe someone a drug they don't need. And if people who meet criteria for Ozempic choose that they don't want to use it, although people are often shamed for using Ozempic, I have a feeling that in time people will be shamed for not using Ozempic because they have no excuse, some might think, to have overweight or obesity, which is just not right. There does need to be a way to classify who's eligible for their drug, so it's not just prescribed so freely. So I think BMI seems like the logical place to start. But really thinking about BMI makes it seem like such a silly metric in this context because it really doesn't indicate who does or doesn't need to need that extra help losing weight. Generally speaking, the American Medical Association actually made a statement about the racist, sexist history of BMI. Their statement didn't explicitly say not to use BMI anymore, but it did recommend using it as just one piece of the puzzle and to also consider things like body fat measurements, waist circumference, and genetic or metabolic factors, and to consider a person's body type. So if we're trying to take all of those things into account when actually thinking about a person's health risk and what kind of counseling or help that they need, I hope that in time, the approach to weight loss medications becomes more holistic as well. I do think that these medications have a lot of value, but I do think that in a society where having overweight and obesity is already socially unacceptable, these medications don't help that. I think a lot of people judging others for using medications like these are probably the same people who judge others for having overweight or obesity in the first place. In an ideal world, everyone would pay no mind to anyone else's body, and everyone would love their own body for what it can do and not what it looks like, and we would all take good care of ourselves because we love ourselves, and we can all acknowledge that healthy bodies can look a million different ways. Unfortunately, that is not the real world that we live in and there's so much pressure to conform and to look a certain way and there's such a strongly held very false belief that thinness is equal to health i just want to say again that some people do need these medications and it can improve someone's health but saying that someone else should or should not use this drug for their health just based on their bmi is clearly quite flawed and now I would like to switch gears a little bit because I'm sure there's people who can hear the things that I'm saying and not really care if BMI is good or not because they think that 
excess weight is a problem and it's the fault of those who carry too much of it. People love to act like excess weight is an indication of some moral failure, but weight is complex. I want to talk about some of the different things that influence weight. All of the research shows that there are many factors on obesity. It is multifactorial, which means that many things influence your body weight, whether it's high or low. So to start, some factors that influence weight are, of course, diet and exercise, but those things alone are not so simple. First off, there is a problem with health literacy or people knowing what healthy care even is. To some people, this seems obvious, but for a lot of people, they never learn this and they truly don't know. A lot of the patients that I work with do not know what is considered healthy and what is not. They don't know how to read a nutrition label and they don't know how to interpret it, especially in our current society where we are just harassed with marketing for things like fast food and sugary cereals, which, you know, some may say obviously seem unhealthy. We're also shown a lot of marketing for things like fruit juice, which is marketed as healthy, but it's really just sugar and people don't know that. And it shouldn't be the primary drink for children, but it is. And of course, there's the issue with access to healthy food during childhood and throughout life. There's a ton of food deserts in this country and especially looking at kids, not everyone has access to healthy food at home. And a lot of them depend on the food in their schools for a majority of their intake. And despite Michelle Obama's best efforts, the food in schools in the U.S. are often not terribly healthy. In terms of exercise, there are tons of urban areas in the U.S. that don't have safe places to walk around outside. Gym memberships and equipment cost money. In case it wasn't obvious, people with a lower socioeconomic status are much more impacted than others. Low socioeconomic status has been found to be a major risk factor for obesity, in part because of the reasons I mentioned. But something that is very sad, but very interesting to me, is that financial mobility does not change risk. So in other words, if you live in poverty in childhood, you are at a higher risk of obesity in adulthood, no matter what your adult income is. And this is thought to be due to toxic stress. So that just means that having a long-term high amount of stress that you're exposed to in childhood can permanently alter your metabolism. So that goes for poverty, but it also can happen with any types of adversity that kids are exposed to. So abuse, death of a loved one, an unstable caregiver, domestic violence in the home, and any other type of serious ongoing trauma. There are other influences in the home that can influence body weight regardless of socioeconomic status. So the way parents talk about food and the way that parents feed in early childhood. So if you ever taken like Psych 101, you may have heard of different parenting styles. So like authoritative, authoritarian, and negligent. And these can all be applied to feeding. So different parent feeding styles have been shown to have a different outcome on people's relationship with food. Things like routines and limits at home also can permanently influence a person's relationship with food and their BMI. And generally, I mentioned this in the Ozempic episode as well, but if you have overweight and obesity, your normal hunger and satiety cues can become dysregulated. So people who have overweight and obesity for any reason may not know when they're full. So they don't overeat because they don't have any willpower, but they do so because there's no cue to their brain that says, 
we're good, we're full, we're done eating. And so once you already have that overweight or obesity, it makes it very hard to lose the weight. And very importantly, genetics play a major role. Genetics have been found to be 40 to 70% accountable for somebody's obesity risk. So as much as people like to attribute weight to personal choices, it is absolutely more complicated than that. All of us have all types of biases, and there is no question that society imparts weight stigma in all of us. It's hard to undo years of media or sometimes familial influences on how we perceive other bodies, but we can all try. I think one way to do that is to follow people online or read content from or talk to people or watch movies about people with all different types of bodies. One recommendation that I have is the book and TV show Shrill. Just a couple weeks ago, I listened to the memoir Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman by Lindy West in one sitting. I was on a road trip through a snowstorm in New Mexico and I was trapped on a mountain for hours and I was scared for my life and the whole time I had Shrill playing in the background and it was fantastic. This book is about Lindy's experience as a fat woman, and that is the word she prefers to use to describe herself and the stigma she's faced because of it. The TV show Shrill, which I watched when it came out a few years ago, streams on Hulu and is starring Amy Bryant, and it's great. Both the show and the memoir have the same, like, inciting event that kind of empowers the lead in both the book and the show. But after that first event, the rest of the storyline is very different. So both of these tell, I think, very different stories and both are totally worth watching and reading, in my opinion. If you have any other recommendations on media that can help people learn more about this topic, whether that be social media accounts or shows, movies, books, whatever, I would love to hear them. You can comment them under this podcast or send them to me on TikTok or Instagram at mediapodcast, M-D-I-A podcast or email them to me at mediapodcast at gmail.com. If you listen to this episode, thank you so much. I hope you learned something, and I hope you listen to the other episode this week as well about Ozempic. Thank you.